You are listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Welcome to episode 30 of It Sounds Like Science. Another week's wow. gone by, Simon. I know, I know. Another very interesting week. Um, yeah, a fascinating, fascinating week in science and some uh, huge advances. Yeah, well, the, the, the most exciting thing, I think, that, uh, well, excitement is a, is a uh, relative term, really, isn't it? But I was really excited to see the Falcon Heavy undergo its... Oh, of course, uh, yes. Its, uh, What's it called? It's called a, a, a static firing. That's what it's called, where all twenty-seven of its engines were were tested to to make sure that they were working ready for its, uh, its its flight in the next week or so. I did see this. Is this the same as Elon Musk's uh, big? I won't say B BFR rocket. <laughs> so there, um, if I, I remember, I, or is or is this a different rocket? I get confused, but it certainly is a big rocket. It's effectively three of his Falcon rockets strapped mm. together. Um, and the central one has had to be strengthened as a consequence of having two others strapped to it. Um, but he, I think, I think that the total maximum weight of a spacecraft is something like 64 tonnes, <laughs> which is astonishing. It's the most... And it's the most powerful rocket to have been tested since Saturn V. Wow! Twice as twice as powerful as the as the next most powerful rocket that's currently in service. And um, yeah, and, and he's planning to put his car in orbit in the same orbit of Mars, basically. Really? Just, just as a just as a test because he doesn't he, he doesn't want to um, he doesn't want to risk a satellite on front of this one. I mean, you and I are veterans of the of the Ariane Five. Uh, yes. Uh, Failure, which we'll we'll get onto Ariane's uh, recent glitch. But the Ariane five, at the first launch was a was a mm. terrible failure. It uh, it, it self destructed about seventy two seconds into the flight, yeah, um, and destroyed the spacecraft that we were uh, seeing on its way. Um, and uh, the it's been flawless since. It's had like eighty yeah. operations since then. So um, we know that the maiden flight of, of rockets is is. Uh, can be a bit dodgy, mm. um, and so Elon Musk has very magnanimously decided to just launch his own car. <laughs> it's great uh, publicity, I suppose, because at the it end is, of the day, for Tesla it? cars, I mean, it's it, it, the first car in space. <laughs> if you don't count the moon buggy, I, I assume he's going to claim, claim that that's a buggy as opposed to a car. So, um, yeah. Anyway... Um, but it's quite interesting because you're saying about the central core, the central rocket needs mm. to be strengthened. And I think it's actually, and even though I did astronautics at Southampton at the university, it isn't actually, for those people listening, these these rockets actually aren't that strong. You imagine these big, strong, very rigid mm. things. And I did something that you're not allowed to do. So there's the Leicester's, well, it's the National Space Centre. And oh, they have yeah. some disused, I think they're Mercury rockets there. Or oh, Redstone, I they, can't remember. They've got, they've got the blue streak there, haven't they? The British. Oh, they have, British and, and they've got a couple one, that. Okay, 
I'll, I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> oh no, sorry. But they've got it. May have been Blue Streak. I'm terrible. But there's one up that the, the, uh, they've built the um, stairs around, mm. and you're not allowed to touch it, which is stupid because as soon as you put that up, you're going to do it. And I touched it, and and the reason became apparent why you're not allowed to touch it because these they're actually incredibly flimsy metal. So you put your hand on it. It's like an empty Coke can. It's the nearest comparison I can get you put your hand on it and, and, and it actually buckles very easily mm. and, and you soon realize the only thing that's really keeping these rockets solid is the weight and pressure of the fuel inside as soon yeah. as it's empty there really isn't that much holding these things together so but of course you by say, that stage, they they're do... above the atmosphere and they don't need yeah. the rigidity then do they yeah yeah, and so it's understandable why these things need to be solidified up because actually there's, there's not really a great deal to them. I think they have, the to be, yeah, they have to be sort of pressurised just to give them that sort of rigidity yeah. when they're on display. Yeah, anyway, uh, as is Elon Musk's wont, um, they are going to land all all of the, um, the, the boosters from these Falcon Heavy uh, back down again, so... Uh, it's going to be quite a nice little sort of ballet of technology, to quote Douglas oh. Adams, uh, as these things come floating <laughs> back down again. But I saw the the test firing was unbelievable because how I just think how it didn't just rip the arm of the uh, the thing that was holding it. You know, I, I wonder what you're going to say then. Uh, no, no, no. But there's the, the the kind of gantry holding it yeah, in place yeah, with yeah. these huge. And how I just thinking how that how it didn't just rip this. You know, gantry apart because at the end of the day, these rockets are incredibly powerful. Yes, and, well, you know, hold, try hold I, these I, things I, in place, just tear it to shreds. I was going to ask you with your um, outreach hat on to try and put a number in some kind of meaningful quantity. So, oh God, the rocket is capable <laughs> of generating almost twenty-three thousand kilo newtons of thrust. Now, a, a newton <laughs> is the force of the weight of a kilogram under Earth's gravity. Is that, is that yes? Right? So it's the equivalent of 23 million bags of sugar. <laughs> no, a kilogram is 10 newtons, I believe. Ten, oh, okay. All right. So I'm a, I'm a factor of 10 out. An immense amount. I, I think... You know, we really should have looked this up, shouldn't we? <laughs> well, let, let's go. Let's go whole hog and Google it, shall we? So <laughs> I'm sure. I, well, I'm pretty sure. I, I think it is. Is I'm sure it's 10 to the, is is power of 10 either way. Okay, here we are. A newton is one kilogram meters per second squared. Oh, okay, I'm wrong then. An object. You were with, right. Yeah, it's the it's the force required to accelerate an object with a mass of one kilogram, one meter per second. So, well, I guess there's the factor of ten because it's um, one meter per second per second because the Earth's gravity. Oh, is, yeah. is nine point eight meters per second per second, isn't it? So, thank you for being so polite. Digging <laughs> <laughs> me out of that hole. <laughs> well, yeah, just goes to show you know, you've got to know what your units are. Um, but uh, yeah, what an immense amount of thrust! Twenty-three thousand yes. kilonewtons of thrust. Oh. And I think this is going to help with his obviously the, the proposed mission to Mars, and, and yes. um, yeah, and and actually on that note, I think the, the the leader of Mars One, which is a private venture that they're hoping to go to Mars in about ten years, which I still think is is wildly ambitious, and that's me being very polite, mm-hmm. um, has now also proposed that he wants to put humans habitating on Venus. 
which I don't know if he's actually Whoa. done much <laughs> studying off on the surface of Venus to melt and lead. And the pressure is... The pressure is sometimes <laughs> greater than that of the depth of the ocean. Wow. Yeah, I was thinking, why? Um, I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, ambitious. I think I'd stick to Mars and trying to get people there alive before you go to basically hell on hell in the solar system. I was thinking, that's insane. Good luck to him, but there isn't going to be... The problem is also... Why, why would you want to live there? As you say, the, the heat and the pressure is ridiculous. You can't ever go outside. On Mars, you can, to a degree. You have to have a nice spacesuit, but you could do it. On Venus... One of those old-fashioned brass... Yeah, costume, just, you're it? not really going to be able to do much. So Because uh, I think there's only been one, what was it, the Russian probe that landed there? And it Venera, yeah. Lasted, yeah, lasted a couple of minutes before it kind of... Well, who knows what happened to it, but it was destroyed. So, um, yeah, good luck to him. Um... <laughs> Well, it's good to have good to have ambitions. Before we leave the um, the, the, the subject of, of rocket, recent rocket launches, though, um, the the Ariane five uh, that uh, experienced its anomaly during a launch. That's that. Those are the words that struck fear into my heart. As you heard the flight, yes, flight uh, um, controller say there has been an anomaly when mm. it blew up last time. But it looks like. It was just a telemetry problem. And yeah. The Ariane 5 went on and actually put its two um, spacecraft into orbit, even though they may not be perfect orbits, they are they are at least actually viable. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really curious that something that's been that um, reliable uh, is now, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're looking in to see what happened. But yeah, it's curious that something that, that, that that's happened with this rocket. But it's interesting, I think, that they still have yet to launch astronauts on it. And I think it's, I don't know if that's just because of the first launch just kind of became so, became almost a stamp on it. But mm. since then, you know, it is ridiculous. It is a shame that the European Space Agency have got such a great rocket that we haven't launched humans, our, our own astronauts with it. I don't know, maybe it's because it would take too much time to actually develop a pod to go on top. And, and, the, and the issues that surrounding that, that that's the, that's the, the limiting factor. But um, yeah, well, I, I think um, I, I think that's uh, certainly one of the aspirations of these programs. But yes, I'm not up to uh, up to speed in, in where they are with developing these things. Well, actually, talking of these things, actually, I should, if I can, the uh, I didn't know if you saw that it, it well, it's creating quite a stir. Is that uh, the a private a private space company have launched a, basically a disco ball into right. space f- from New Zealand. And um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, in New Zealand, the launch pad was a sheep farm. Which, <laughs> oh, no, come on. Let's not stoop to national I, stereotyping. It, it, no, and that's what I thought it was. But actually, it is part of a sheep farm <laughs> that they've just penned off a corner and built a launch pad. And, um, <laughs> and a barbecue. And ba- <laughs> <laughs> It appears to be mainly because they've chosen New Zealand because there's no, um, oh, they don't have to stop worry too much about plane traffic as you right, do in okay. the states. Okay. But um, it's for, what. So the problem is, on one side, they've got a, a lot of press because they've launched this disco ball into space, and, and it's called the Humanity Star. And as people have pointed out, there's plenty of stars in space that people can enjoy rather than having some sort of monstrosity up there that you can barely see. And I should point out. If you live luckily in the countryside or away from light pollution, you can actually see satellites if you keep your eye out, twinkling, going over. So I think everyone's problem with this is is yet more light pollution, more 
junk in space so, that isn't so really doing much. I, I assumed that it was a disco ball because it was spherical and it was covered in solar panels, but it is actually reflective. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it, it is basically. It is a. It's, imagine a. Oh, the best thing to do is, is think about 70s sci-fi and some sort of uh, spacecraft that would have come down with little, which would have been a ball with little mirrors on it. Right, that okay. is basically it. And obviously it just reflects sunlight back down to Earth and people can see it. But, you know, the moon does that. Um, I think everyone <laughs> needs to remember. <laughs> and that's quite impressive. Um, so, um, yeah, people seem to forget it. But obviously astronomers are quite cheesed off because you don't want something up there scattering sunlight here, there and everywhere that you mm. don't really know. Uh, so, But interestingly, I think that the shame of it is, is that it's put off that the rocket was 3D printed. Really? Now, quite how they've done that, I don't know. But I was thinking, actually, instead of if if you can get to the stage where you can print such large structures, why don't you just place the 3D printer in space and actually just print your satellites up there? Which, to me, would seem the next step. But um, obviously, there's people far more intelligent than me. I'm actually, sure, reason, but I'm sure there's one or two giant corporate logos are being mm. um, fabricated as we speak. <laughs> Um, uh, Elon Musk is doing it. Is he can just start three D printing cars in space instead of having to fly them up? But um, yeah, interesting. Uh, but it just shows again that the the major steps forward are actually being in space being made by private companies rather than rather than nations these days. We're talking about satellites going over. I, I live in a reasonably rural location, and and yeah, I remember watching the space station go over and you could see it was when one of the shuttles was coming into dock and you saw the space station go and you saw the shuttle going around behind it really and then the next wow, one, that's the next, amazing the next orbit it came over it was a little bit closer yeah it's very very exciting you really wow. get some sort of tangible feel of of this sort of docking maneuver in, in progress but amateur astronomers have just cut it down to a pattern now because the space station is such a large structure and they've got these computer um guided uh, telescopes now that even from the back garden if you've got the ability to point your telescope accurately you can track and take pictures of the space station and there's been some amazing pictures taken um some amateur astronomer took a picture of the space shuttle docked on the space station back well it was it was i think it was while i was still at university but a really amazing picture wow. it absolutely blew my mind really really was incredible the sort of the detail that you can get from 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 the ground so yeah do go out if you've got clear skies do go out in a rural location until you can see satellites going by talking of that you can actually also pick up the radio signals because one of the uh, lab techs here is uh amateur radio or i don't know we call it, ham radio person uh-huh. and you can tune in and he listened into tim peak oh wow and it, it was on an open channel which i'm shocked at but yeah, he could tune in and he's got recordings of it and it was perfectly open and everyone could listen as long as it was in range. Which oh, again, strange. so actually, yeah, you can just kind of, you know, go and listen to all these things. And you can download satellite weather images, etc. if you've got the right tools. Mm. I think uh, now that there's these little uh, modular computers like the Raspberry Pi, etc., you can you can get um, little, quite get little radio um, receivers set up with those quite quite quickly. Anyway, moving on from from leaving the planet, I wanted to talk about leaving Africa because there's been another story uh, that modern humans left Africa much earlier than thought and they found some teeth, some fossil teeth uh, um, from Israel and they seem to indicate that our species, Homo sapiens, lived outside Africa around 185,000 years ago and that's some 80,000 years earlier than previously thought. Um, Wow. 
yeah, so it, it fundamentally alters our ideas about about human evolution. So every time new evidence comes along, um, it's it changes our way of viewing these things. But that's really pushing back how far, as you say, I didn't have what eighty thousand years to yeah. the story. That's amazing. It was normally thought to be one hundred and thirty thousand. Yeah, so this is this has pushed that back quite considerably. So yeah. As you build evidence, you have to change your theory. So it's uh, it's, it's quite spectacular. Um, uh, I'm just going to check where they found them. The researchers analysed a fragment of a jawbone with eight teeth found in. Oh, here we go. Pronunciation challenge. Miss Miss Leah Cave in 2002. Uh, the jawbone looked as if it was from a modern human rather than from one of another species of humans that existed at that time. Uh, it's only wow. now that the international research team has conclusively shown that the archaeologists' initial gut feelings were spot on. This is uh, quoted on the BBC website. Yeah, just every time we get together, there seems to be some other discovery that's pushed our understanding or our, mm. um, you know, broadened our horizons of, of our understanding of these things just a little bit further. Well, talking of which, actually, of pushing the boundaries and the horizons, and uh, well, talking of China earlier as well. That the Chinese scientists have actually cloned the first primates, which oh, yes, is starting to get. Uh, I don't know if it's the new story of, said rather ominously that it's the first non-human primates. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> this is if that sort of implies that human primates have already been cloned, but I'm not well, sure that can be the case. I think that they have tried. Oh, I don't know if. Oh, actually, I won't. Because I, I probably got to get everything wrong, so I won't say. Uh, but I, um, I think that you know embryos they might have, and they have to destroy them. But these are the first ones that have been taken through, all the way to kind of gestation and birth. Right. And um, but it's done in the same way as Dolly the sheep. And yes. I didn't know there was actually different ways. So this is where you basically take an egg, you remove the nucleus, and then you put in the nucleus of mm. an already living. Yeah. Uh, specimen, yeah. and then you zap it with a bit of electricity, and uh, away it goes. And they've produced twins in this way. And um, yeah, I, th- I think the main part of this is actually interesting. Well, it is interesting from a human point of view because it's not really the the process of cloning that they're really looking at. It's actually how twins age and develop. And actually, this is this is actually a really big thing. And there's uh, King's College in London. There's a Department of Twin Research. And, and, and until recently, whatever, whatever. I think there's one at St Luke's as well. But, um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I didn't realise that. Uh, your, well, obviously, your DNA changes over your life. But in twins, it, it actually different parts of their DNA changes. So oh, okay. actually, as you grow old. Different genes are switched on. They don't know why. And the big, the big cause, uh, why they're interested in is, um, is, is, is obviously is very tragic. But um, occasionally, one twin will get leukemia, and one won't. And the causes of this is genetic. So they're looking at this: is of why would you have two people that have got are genetically identical why would then one get a genetic illness and the others wouldn't and obviously they're trying to look at the reasons behind this is it viral is it environmental mm. but if you're brought up in the same environment you right. know is is really and, and actually this is part of the reason what they're trying to do here is actually you know how these genes vary in people but it's kind of a bit yeah it is strange how we get into the stage we're getting edging closer to us Yes, basically, yeah. and I think that's what's starting to. Uh, but dogs have been cloned, 
I think and other animals have been cloned quite yeah, quite been successfully. Been yeah. yeah, so I think it's just that when it gets to as you're saying about our ancestors, our early ancestors with um ancient humans, you know, this isn't that far removed. I think the McCall monkeys, but it's not that far from us, really. And if you can do it with this, then the next step is is obviously but it human is still beings. Very hit and miss, as I understand it. It takes oh, a lot of trial and error to get an yeah, embryo to actually start developing. So, other techniques have taken an embryo and split it in two and created identical, yeah. identical twins that way. But this is, as you say, putting information inside a donor egg and and then getting it to develop. And that's not a very efficient process. And I'd be interested to know because I know Donnie the sheep was actually quite arthritic and didn't live yes. that long. Um, and it's about the yeah you know, the apparent age of the clones, and it'd be interesting to see what um, what that what transpires to the monkeys. Because I remember saw this guy. Oh, well, I can't remember his name, but he's the chap, and I think we've spoke about him before. Who said that the first human being that would live to several thousand years old mm. is alive today and fruit it? And he, yeah, I was listening to one of his talks, and he's actually very interesting. And he was saying, well. Because someone was saying, how do you think you could turn the clock back on human cells? Because they age and, you know, your cell, which is what you're saying with Dolly, the sheep, is that if you take uh, cells from a sheep that's 10 years old and you put them into a nucleus and kickstart, those cells are effectively 10 years old and have that DNA kind of degradation. And he said something very interesting. He said, well, actually, when you have children, your cells must have the ability to reset because when you pass on your DNA to your children... Yeah, they do not. They come out kind of clock reset. They don't have this thing of you know. They yeah. don't come out with your say you're thirty when you have your children with thirty year old DNA that's already started to degrade. Somehow it's managed to reset. And um, yeah, it is interesting on that kind of scale. Could this start giving us clues of how we can re- you know could how how the body resets its DNA for children? And obviously that's interesting from the point of view of aging. So, but as you, as unfortunately these these um, these animals these clones that are created this way do have a lot of of, of kind of illnesses that are associated with age. And uh, so it'd be interesting to see how these these monkeys develop. Yes, uh, well, <laughs> so that was a bit of a, 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 a monologue there. Sorry, but it, it, it's something I found interesting. It, it's, it's strange actually saying that because it, it, someone said to me the other day, "What do you find most interesting?" And I actually say things like this because I don't understand it. Yeah, <laughs> space is kind of I've got my head around that with this wow, kind of thing. That's a big head. Having well, yeah, it's because uh, it's I need my hair cut as well. It's getting bigger, but. Um, it, with this, because I stopped doing biology at 16, yeah, this yeah. stuff to me is just, you know, I have no, it, it just blows my mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reading up on dinosaur evolution at the moment. It's for the same reason, is that, yeah, I, I left that behind a long time ago and, and I just want to try and understand, you know, what's been going on in, in the time since I've stopped. But uh, this is the, 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 the uh, biology story that's caught both our eyes in the press is the plastic. Infestation of coral reefs. So the BBC headline is a third of coral reefs entangled with plastic. And this is a recent survey that was done um, that more than 11 billion items of plastic were found on a third of coral reefs surveyed in the Asia Pacific region. Um, And it's predicted to increase to more than 15 billion by 2025. And the problem with the plastics is it's not just that they're, you know, and we see pictures of you know turtles with their shells deformed yeah. stuck in a ring pool 
and that sort of thing. But they, they think that they, the presence of these plastic raises the risk of disease to the corals themselves. Um, and so if you have plastic bags, bottles, rice sacks, all kinds of things amongst it, then it's actually that the more spindly the, 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 the coral is, the more likely it is to get entangled with the plastic and the more likely it is to be impactful on its health. It feel, it's almost like um, if you have like a foreign body in your own, you know, if you get, a, it, it seems to be that, yeah, it just increases, there's this reaction by the coral to kind of fight it off. And that just seems to, I don't know, it's, it, they, they compared it to gangrene. Yeah. It, you know, it's just something, I suppose it's something on which the plastic is, is where kind of disease can grow. Yeah. And it just, it is, but you look at the pictures and it's, it, it's worrying, but I think the only good thing is is that it is now becoming too public consciousness. It's been raised to such a degree now that I think hopefully something will be done about it. Certainly in Europe, I think obviously we live in, in a, a bit of a bubble where we've done a lot of our progression. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, the, you know, as people say, these are first world problems. Unfortunately, it's a whole planet. But I think whereas, you know, we can modify our plastic use in other countries where they are developing, plastic has helped us so much, is how you actually help these countries, not mm. to a degree, you know, to, and they can rightfully say, as we've seen with carbon, mm-hmm. they can turn around and say, you know, well, you burnt all your fossil fuels and you developed, why can't we? And I think that's the big challenge. Well, we can solve well, this in Europe. How do yeah, we, we've you gone know, through that development. We've got to sort of a more advanced stage, so we need to catapult them to that advanced stage yeah. rather than having to go through all this. Yeah. Well, it's more than just a, a sort of a, a sort of a yeah, greeny tree hugging issue because mm. as the BBC website points out, um, these coral reefs are home to fish. They're they're the basis of ecosystems and more than two hundred and seventy five million people rely on coral reefs for food, coastal protection and tourism. So it does impact people's lives in in all kinds of ways in addition to yeah, just looking unpleasant. And I think it was in Australia, a, uh, a scientist down there started, you know, saying about the, the, the dangers and, and trying to make people aware of it. And, he, and, you know, and say maybe we should reduce tourism for a while, stuff like that. And he was slapped down by a minister. Mm. And it's this double-edged sword because the minister was saying, well, you know, we're worried that we'll turn tourists away. But at the same time, if you don't start turning tourists away, you've got the issue of, you know, will you have a reef there in 50 years' time for for the tourists then? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's a difficult situation. I think something, I think in the West, to avoid a pun, the tide is turning. But how we kind of do that globally is is the challenge, really, to make everyone aware that, you know, how this is going to impact negatively on you is actually very important for your future. Yeah. Yeah, well, the mechanism seems to be that um, if you have plastic, it can cut out light and oxygen from the coral, and that stresses it, and anything that's stressed is more likely to Mm. allow um, pathogens to take hold and and to get diseased. So, yeah, the solution, obviously, is is to clean up what's there, but also to more to the point to make it more difficult to actually generate these things uh, yeah I'm, I'm sufficiently old to remember Mars bars wrapped in wax paper and uh, really? I, I think that's the way to go you know obviously that's going to put a greater impact on the paper industry but it's, it's the sort of those sort of biodegradable wrappings that are, are much more um, yeah sustainable in the long run I think we should start a business 
yeah. of waxed paper for this because I think obviously there's going to be a need for it. I, I, do you know what? Because I, I was thinking, how could things like that be still? I, do you know what? God, I must. I sound, must sound like an imbecile, but I did not know about waxed paper. <laughs> I, I'm clearly a child of the eighties. I just thought everything was plastic. Before that, it just rotted, and it was just tough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some of the early plastics, like Bakelite, were biodegradable. So I imagine the the solution is to is to go back to plastics Bakelite that, that do have a, bio- a specific uh, life lifetime. Bakelite was biodegradable. I well, did it, not it, know well, that. It wasn't designed to be biodegradable, but it did biodegrade. It used to get brittle and um, and uh, yeah, just become wow, yeah, non-stable. Yeah, I imagine oh, it was wow. exposure to UV. Yeah. Oh, but that's that's interesting. Actually, you've got these solutions in our past. Hopefully, I don't I don't know what bakelite was made of and whether it actually has got. It's probably made with asbestos and and lead and and uh, <laughs> yeah, healthy particulates. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to look that up now as well. No, okay, so bakelite, bakelite. What was that? Uh, okay. What was it made of? Here we go. Wikipedia will help us. Oh, here's the here's the pronunciation challenge: polyoxybenzylmethylenergicolahydride. Oh, but it's a thermosetting phenylformaldehyde resin formed from a condensation reaction of phenol with formaldehyde. I I used to help my father um, work, and he was working as an electrician when I was smaller, and and some of the older houses that he was rewiring would have original Bakelite fittings, uh, which we'd be taking out. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm I'm just making myself sound really ancient here. I think I'd better stop talking. It's been great (laughs) speaking with you, Simon, as always. (laughs) I'll catch up again soon. Yeah, hopefully on the wireless or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, Simon. See you soon. Bye. You have been listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science with Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Tweet us at SL Science.